This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Hello, everyone. I'm Brandon Baker, Vice President of Development at the Rand Corporation. I hope that you are all staying safe and well during this time. For those of you who have joined these calls before, welcome back. And for our new listeners, thanks so much for joining us today. Before we get started, I do want to take a minute to thank each of you for your ongoing support of RAND. As most of you know, RAND is a nonprofit, and now more than ever, we depend on our donors and our supporters. We need your support to continue doing the research that is having direct impact on our communities and our institutions across the U.S. and globally. As supporters and friends of RAND, we want to make sure that we're helping you access reliable information. We hope you continue to turn to RAND as a resource during these challenging times. We don't have all the answers right now, and in fact, no one does, but our researchers are asking the critical questions and they're working to answer them. And you can trust that we'll share COVID-19 related RAND research tools as soon as they become available. In the meantime, our experts are here to share their insights with you. And today we're excited to have educational researchers talk about K-12 education issues, social and emotional learning matters, and resources for students and parents. So now I'd like to turn this over to Jeff Heide, our Director of Media Relations here at RAND. He'll moderate the call and he'll also introduce our speakers. Jeff? Thanks so much, Brandon. Uh, Today we are indeed speaking about the many ways in which the pandemic is affecting education. We have four of our top education experts on the call. Here in Washington, I'm joined by Darlene Opfer. We are in a very large conference room, sitting very far apart. Nothing personal, Darlene. Uh, Darlene is Vice President and Director for RAND Education and Labor, as well as our Distinguished Chair in Education Policy. Thanks for joining, Darlene. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, Joining from Pittsburgh and also sitting far apart, I can see from our video link up, Uh, are Laura Hamilton and Julia Kaufman. Laura is a senior behavioral scientist and our distinguished chair in learning and assessment. Hi, Laura. Hi, thanks. Hi, and we have Julia, a senior policy researcher. Hi, Julia. Hi, Jeff. And finally, joining us from her home in New Orleans is Heather Schwartz. Heather is a senior policy researcher and director of our pre-K to 12 educational systems program. Hi, Heather. Hi. Today's call is scheduled for an hour. It's being recorded and will be made into a podcast on RAND.org. You may ask a question at any time via Slido. A lot of you have already been posing questions there. It is sly, S-L-I, dot D-O. You would enter code 2331. If you have any trouble, you can send an email to events at RAND.org. That's events, plural, at RAND.org. As with prior calls, we've had an enormous response to this one, and we may not be able to get to everyone's questions, but we'll answer as many as we can. Before we begin, I'd like to note that RAND has nearly 20 research projects in the works regarding COVID-19, including some that will be published as soon as next week, and about a quarter of these concern our topic today, the effects on education. So maybe we'll get a chance to talk about some of those. All right, let's dive in. Darlene, let me start with you. We are seeing just an enormous disruption for schools, many of them closed for the rest of the school year. Can you talk uh, first a bit about the scope of the disruption? Are there any parallels for this in history? 
Um, no, I think this is uh, a situation that we've never faced before. Um, obviously, we've had localized closures as a result of hurricanes. So you can think Katrina, uh, the hurricanes in 2017, or Maria, um, that affected particular regions in the U.S. But the uh, closest parallel to this would have been the uh, Spanish flu pandemic in 1918. And of course, that was a very different uh, period of time where most women stayed at home. So mothers were at home at that time which is not necessarily the case now. And we were also in World War One, so there was this huge sense of patriotism um, and trust in institutions. Right. What's the effect going to be now? What kind of learning loss might we expect from COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's um, entirely, uh, it's entirely impossible to predict. But we do know from our own research at RAND that um, every summer, children lose learning uh, when they're out of school. It particularly impacts uh, low-income students and students with special needs more than it does other students. Um, so, And that those students also come to school already with achievement gaps in kindergarten. So the combination of both existing achievement gaps and widening achievement gaps that will result from being out of school over a long period of time is going to exacerbate uh, the situation that we have now. Even if you have plenty of online learning? Well, uh, again, uh, our own research on online learning shows that these programs do not do as well as face-to-face uh, -face programs. And that's assuming that students have access to them to begin with. Right. Uh, maybe I could turn to Laura. Uh, Laura, what, what are some of the things that schools ought to be doing at a time like this? Well, I think one of the things we're seeing is is principals, teachers, and other school staff really springing into action. Um, many of them recognize the limits of online learning, and they're aware of the summer learning loss that Darlene mentioned, and they're they're really working hard to try to accommodate that. But one thing we often don't think about when we think about schools is that they do a lot more for children besides promoting academic learning. Um, and so a lot of schools are now first having to ensure before they can even think about learning that students' basic needs are met. Some students rely on schools for meals. Um, in some places, uh, kids even rely on them for things like laundry. Um, and meeting those needs is obviously very challenging, uh, particularly in this in this era of uh, physical distancing. But that's that's one of the first things schools are having to do. Schools also need to consider kids' social and emotional needs. Um, you know, we know from research that in order to learn academically, kids need to feel uh, socially and emotionally supported, they need to feel safe, they need to be engaged, and they need to have good relationships with teachers and others uh, in their in their building. And so there's a need to really make sure to be attentive to that well-being and find ways for teachers to continue to have those relationships through things like, you know, it might be video chatting or just sending a, a friendly email personalized um, every day. Students really, you know, many students have have, um, you know, a particular adult who they've connected with, and now that relationship is, is feeling like it's severed, and so there's a need to try to, to maintain those. Schools need to engage with families, of course, and then, and then obviously they need to worry about enabling high-quality instruction, uh, providing the bandwidth and, and resources for that, which we can talk more about, um, and devising an academic curriculum that will work in a distance learning format. So they have their 
hands full, and we're seeing um, just many educators around the country really, you know, stepping up and, and working incredibly hard to, to meet all these needs. They've they've got their hands full, like you say. Heather, I know you've looked at this. Uh, is it something that the schools can manage, uh, or, or are they going to need help elsewhere? Should the federal government, for example, be stepping in somehow? Uh, yeah, the federal government could play a really crucial role here, and that's because um, giving children access to the internet from the home and a device that can connect to the internet, whether that be a tablet or a laptop, are really crucial for online learning. And yes, online learning has its limitations, but it's crucial. It's really, it far exceeds the potential of hard copy materials, which some schools are currently sending home in, you know, um, in the form of worksheets and, and dropping them off through school bus routes or through pickup spots, those worksheets can only go so far. And it really places a burden on parents, especially for young children or children with disabilities, to really provide the instruction in lieu of a teacher. So that online learning is super important. And that's where the federal government could definitely play a role. Um, they could help expand access so that children get internet access from home and, like I said, get that internet-connected device. So if, the, they, if they could basically build off of E-rate, they being the federal government, to help districts vastly expand the kind of hotspots that some districts are currently doing right now to try to get kids who don't have internet access, get that access from homes and, and public areas where they can safely socially, social distance. So that's one place that I think that probably my number one answer about how the federal government could step in. Um, the second is, and this is actually something that's already been ongoing, it's been crucial, the waivers that the federal government has already provided to, for example, most prominently on state testing. So that states, have, and most states already have done this um, since passed along a waiver for schools that they no longer need to do spring testing. Um, and then third, I said the third thing that I could think of for the federal government to do, and this is in recognition of the history of local control in the United States, is that the federal government could provide funding to states for states to work in networks. And this is something that we at RAND would love to do and have done in the past, to work with networks of states to share best practices and in their um, experience with COVID-19 thus far. The federal government could also fund research that would really help districts propel themselves and get ready for the next prolonged school closure, which I think is super important, and I hope we return to that in this discussion. Can I just go back to that second point you made about the waivers the federal government has provided on state testing? I mean, essentially, standardized testing is out the window now. Uh, what What are the implications for that? Mm -hmm. Well, some of the implications for that is um, that the main one is that it's essentially freezing in place school accountability rules where schools are graded on how their students do on spring tests. So obviously with the lack of this fresh batch of spring tests, that's going to, in essence, freeze the uh, school rating system. There's a lot attached in some of these districts to that school rating system. It could mean principal turnover. It could mean school takeovers. Um, so if, you, if schools get consecutive low grades in their district. So in essence, it's 
going to put a hold on the annual school accountability or school grading system. It's also going to put a hold on the those districts that decide which students to promote or retain in grade based on spring testing. Those are the two main ones that come to mind. Someone else in this group might have some other ideas. Laura, anything from you on that point? No, I think, well, I would just add that um, what schools often rely on looking at those spring test scores to evaluate students when they come back in the fall and to figure out, for example, which kids might be far behind in terms of their reading level and might need a little bit of a, a booster and intervention. And so, um, you know, schools and districts will have to find other ways to do that. Um, it may actually end up uh, reducing the reliance on standardized tests as a sole measure of, of how kids are doing. And so that might not be a, a bad thing. Um, but, but I think we're going to see schools doing a lot, some more sort of diagnostic testing in the fall when kids come back. Got it. Uh, thank you. Julia, could I ask you to build on what might work here? Could you describe what, what quality academic instruction could look like? during this crisis? Sure. Um, Schools are thinking about so many issues right now. Like Laura said, they have so much on their plate, but at the same time, they have to be thinking about the continuity of the instruction um, and and connecting with what students were provided before schools closed, before students are left behind. I know a lot of school leaders and teachers that I've heard from are thinking a lot about the coherence of instruction, how to make sure that what they're providing builds on and supports what they were already doing. Um, for better or for worse, teachers are being inundated with tons of suggestions for digital materials to use, and some of these materials are great, but to bri- provide coherent instruction means to think about the curriculum that students were using before schools closed. Curricula, and what I mean by that, are sets of lessons that build on one another, scaffold. Um, good curricula is also tied to academic standards for each subject and each grade level. Um, So curriculum is a great starting point. Unfortunately, a lot of curriculum isn't provided online. It's in a textbook. And so what do you do in that case? I think we have seen teachers getting really creative and, you know, posting PDFs of materials online. But when materials are online and some textbooks do provide online materials, that's been an easy way to focus on curriculum. There are curricula that are free, open educational resources like Engage New York, Learn Zillion, Open Up Resources. Many of these are aligned with most state standards. And so if there is no online curriculum option, teachers could turn to those. But I would say starting with curriculum and then branching out and thinking, okay, how could these digital materials help enforce, reinforce, and support what, are, what I'm teaching in my curriculum? Is, is probably the easiest way to go in order to think about building on what students have already learned. Is it a matter of money to get a hold of these particular curricula, or can they be found somewhere for free? So there are some open educational resources. The ones I mentioned, Engage New York is a website, LearnZillion, Open Up Resources. These are all free websites that one can go to and access open curricula. Um, Of course, there are paid versions of some of these curricula, too, that might have more bells and whistles. But if you're looking to look for content that's really aligned with students with state standards in a state, you know, starting with those materials and then thinking about other digital resources that may be more engaging could be a way to go. Heather. 
I think, and just to totally second what Julia is just saying, um, the costs for districts, and this is something that they've been very um, conscientious about, is the cost of the infrastructure. The, the to hark back to this internet connectivity thing, if many of your students don't have internet access at home, it's it's very the inequities of relying on online instruction is really worrisome when there's a significant segment of your student population that can't access it. So the so in terms of cost, it's fantastic that there are so many free resources now. And this is really a, a big change that we've seen, like the, the amount of digital content, the availability of learning management systems. These things have really changed in the last decade and matured. So it's just really tremendously important for COVID-19. But... The cost is getting students online in a reliable and systematic way. All right. We're going to touch on that a, a bit more in a minute. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask Laura about is at, at a time like this, when the teachers are trying to do it all remotely, what what do they need? Uh, or what do other school staff need? So, and, and we're actually hearing a lot from teachers now and, and – um, as part of work we're doing at RAND and also through some of the partners who we work with. And, um, you know, teachers go into this profession because they love the content that they teach, but really because they love being with students. And so this, um, you know, separation from their students has been um, really stressful and in some cases traumatic for for teachers. So in addition to dealing with their own concerns about their health, they might have... um, you know, family members who are ill, they might have children who they who they have to take care of whose childcare uh, is no longer operating. Teachers are really worried about their kids, the, the kids that they teach. Um, the other concern is that teaching can be a lonely profession anyway. Um, and this is just exacerbating that, right? So, so they no longer have the opportunity to you know, run into each other in the hall to chat, to have coffee together. Um, so what we're hearing from teachers is that they need, um, they need cl- opportunities to collaborate with their peers. They need to feel connected to their students and to their students' families. Um, they also, you know, Julia kind of mentioned this, but at the same time, um, as, as they're dealing with this sort of loss, uh, they're also feeling inundated with, with new ideas and resources. And so lists of, you know, here are 10 ways to do a remote classroom, and here are 15 resources you can adopt. And um, so they're calling out for sort of guidance, you know, how can I make sense of all this? What's the most important thing that I can um, offer my students? Um, I think we're seeing a lot of creativity. Teachers love to, um, you know, to be creative and to develop lessons and come up with new ideas. But there's a huge burden on them right now to kind of ramp up a fully distance learning curriculum very quickly. And so I think um, having the support and the guidance to do that, along with the opportunities to learn from their colleagues and just be able to to vent to their colleagues like so many of us um, need to do every once in a while. Though that you know that those are those are the biggest things that I think we're hearing. Let me let me turn to a few questions from Salado. Uh, Audrey asks, what are some of the resources and equipment teachers are saying they need to provide distance learning? I think what Heather already said about lack of hardware and computers and laptops, those 
are really important right now. Some districts were ahead of the game and made sure they knew who needed those before schools were closed. But some schools are some schools and districts are trying to figure that out right now. So I think that's a big thing. Um, there are so many learning management systems out there, and so I think that a lot of them are being utilized, and some of them are free. Um, but they are hard for teachers to to learn um, and hard for students to learn. And so training on both sides is probably pretty important right now. Laura, did you want to say something else there? I was just going to add that, you know, some teachers don't have Internet access in their home. Um, they may have an Internet access with one computer, and now they've got a spouse at home, and they've got um, kids who are doing homeschool. Um, so a lot of it is just making sure that, that all of your teachers have the equipment and the connectivity that they need to be able to do this, this distance education, let alone ensuring that their students have access to that. There's a related question from Penelope asking, I live in an area that, had, that, that no broadband carrier will service, and the impact on education is clear. Why isn't Internet a utility rather than an information service? I'm hoping, can, can one of our four education experts uh, tell us why we don't have universal Internet in America? I'm not. I'm not sure we can uh, come up with the answer. I mean, certainly uh, Heather mentioned E-rate earlier. E-rate was uh, developed about a decade ago to try to solve this problem for schools specifically, but it was really about school connectivity and not individual home connectivity, and that's something that hasn't been tackled by either the federal government or state governments. Good question. Hard to answer. Uh, interesting question from John asking, please address online education versus homeschooling. I mean, it, it, it seems like millions of parents have asked to suddenly become experts in homeschooling. Uh, but maybe there are obvious differences between online education and homeschooling. Who could get into this? Um, I'm happy to, to take that one as well. I mean, there are some assumptions that are very different. So in the homeschooling situation, the parent is the teacher. Um, much like we have parents right now who are being, you know, forced to homeschool. Um, on most of the online um, schools that exist, so a lot of the online charter schools, do not necessarily expect the parent to play a large role. So they have systems set up, they have uh, lessons structured in a way that allow students to work more independently. Uh, now, that has some disadvantages. I mean, it assumes that uh, the student can work independently and has the the um, want to do that. But they are very different models in thinking about how you school at home. Thank you, Darlene. Uh, another question on Slido from Luke. What do you think will happen to private, private K-12 through schools and colleges if they cannot open in the fall? Thoughts on pricing online versus traditional schooling? Gosh, if I had that crystal ball, I think there would be a lot of principals and uh, heads of colleges and universities calling me right now. This is Heather speaking, by the way. Um, I am assuming that if there is some, uh, and actually, I, as a, a parent with a child in a private school, my assumption is that if school continues to be closed next year, that tuition would remain the same, but that there would be just in as like a version 2.0 of the online learning that we're currently struggling through, shall we say. So my assumption is that universities and private schools and public schools won't be fundamentally 
changing their whole delivery model, but they will continue to and probably have gotten better at online learning. Um, Laura, you want to say something about college or higher education? Well, one thing I wanted to point out is that right now is the time when seniors across the country are getting acceptance or rejection letters from colleges. It's when they're making decisions about what they're going to do next year. And so I think one of the challenges in thinking about the whole post-secondary sector is how do they reach out to those students and make sure that those students have the information they need to make good decisions. I think there's a lot of concern that um, kids are losing access to their guidance counselors who might help walk them through those decisions, including some of the financial uh, implications, you know, so so understanding how to how the financial aid system works and so forth. There are kids who, you know, may not be able to finish their their high school program. They're not going to get credit. So there's there's a whole um, host of challenges that are that are rising up now from the transition from high school into college. Also some challenges related to the career and technical education sector. So a lot of kids in high schools are enrolled in very high quality career and technical education programs that will give them a certification to go directly into the workforce when they graduate. Um, well, those programs are often on hold. Those often involve a lot of hands-on um, interaction with folks or work in labs and things like that. Um, and so finishing up those programs is, is challenging. So I think it's th- there's just a whole bunch of questions about um, both of these sectors and, and how they can better interact at this time when there's such an information gap um, on both sides. Heather, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I'm to, just to get back to this question about pricing and online schools, I do think that this COVID-19 uh, you know, crisis is likely going to be a push schools to get serious about um, dipping into more online learning. So there's lots of schools who, uh, you know, pre-COVID crisis offered online courses. So they could be bricks and mortar schools and they're offering blended learning or online courses. So they're basically having a hybrid approach. They're having face-to-face instruction and they're also offering online learning. I would expect that that would be far more common and more prevalent post-pandemic at once schools have really gotten their legs under them on how to deliver online instruction. Does that mean that bricks and mortar schools will go away? I don't think so. But I could imagine that online learning will be a much bigger feature of the pre-K through 12 grade span and higher education as well. Great. Another question on Slido from Monica. What, what type of specific RAND research projects or questions are being brought up relating to this topic? And maybe I could start with Laura on this one. Sure. So um, we, we've got kind of three buckets of activity that's that's going on right now. So first of all, and, and um, the, the quickest one is we're trying to share guidance with the field as fast as we can based on research that we've already done. Um, so Darlene uh, already mentioned, you know, some of what we learned from the summer learning work that we've done and, and studies of online charter schools. We've also been putting guidance out on uh, topics like digital materials, social and emotional learning, college and career readiness support. So I'm um, just pulling from work that was pre-COVID, um, but that has lessons, we think, for this, this new world that we're all in. There's a second set of activities that involves uh, trying to gather new data to understand how teachers, principals, and school district leaders are addressing 
instruction as well as social supports for students and what they need to do this better. Um, so for example, we'll be fielding some teacher and principal surveys next month um, with a publication due out in June. We're going to try to get the results out very quickly. Uh, the surveys will cover um, you know, all sorts of questions about how teachers are delivering instruction, what are the supports they need, what are the things they're worried about. Um, that April to June um, time frame is, is really lightning speed in, the, in our research world. It usually takes us a lot longer. Um, this is possible for us because we already have standing panels of teachers and principals um, and are creating a panel of district leaders. And so these are, um, when I say panel, it's basically this, this uh, selected group of, of, of teachers and principals. They're selected um, in a probability-based way that sort of gives us a scientific, nationally representative sample, and it allows us to launch surveys um, very quickly. So we call those the American Educator Panels. So that resource has really come in handy um, and it's allowing us to kind of take the pulse of the, the American teacher and principal um, and to really address the concerns that they have at this, at this um, very stressful time. And then kind of the third set of activities we're, we're thinking about is work that we'd like to do that we don't yet have support for, um, but are, are pursuing it. So one, one example of that is we have another panel um, of Americans called the American Life Panel um, that we're hoping to be able to survey um, with a focus on parents of children um, under the age of 18. And so that would give us some nice complementary data to understand how parents are responding this to this crisis, how they're interacting with schools. It'll help us really understand kind of the, the whole ecosystem if we can get parents, teachers, and principals. Um, another thing that we're, uh, you know, trying to pursue is a longer-term survey of teachers that would allow us to um, sort of look at teachers' sense of well-being over time, how they're feeling about their working conditions. So not stopping with, with this COVID crisis, but, but you know, going forward, understanding what are the things that teachers need to do their jobs better, um, how are they feeling about the jobs, you know, are they are they experiencing stress and so forth? With all well. of these activities, we want to identify ways to help states and districts. So at the end of the day, given what we learn from teachers and, and school principals or parents, that we want to be able to help them be more strategic in the future, to be able to um, plan ahead for the next crisis so that everybody isn't scrambling as they are right now. Good thinking. I, I wouldn't mind, you know, several times there, Laura mentioned the American Teacher Panel, could you just describe how many folks are on it, how often they are queried, how, what kind of balance, geographic, et cetera, they represent? Sure. Um, so we have the two panels that Laura mentioned, one for teachers and one for school leaders. The American Teacher Panel has about 22,000 teachers in it. It has national representation, as Laura mentioned, plus we have a set of 20-plus state-level uh, representation as well. Uh, we cover the entire country. We cover K-12, through every subject area um, as well. The principal panel is about half the size of the teacher panel, so 12 to 14,000. Yep, principals and leaders, and again, national, uh, nationally representative sample and state samples that uh, match the teacher samples as well. And in terms of uh, how often, we have been uh, surveying each of the panelists uh, approximately four times a year. Very good. Uh, there are two questions from Slido that are 
essentially follow-ups to the kind of research that we're looking at. One is from Monica about what type of specific RAND research project questions are being brought up, uh, which I think we may have covered. Uh, Liz has asked if we could elaborate on earlier comments about the implications for inequities and if RAND is undertaking new work on this topic. Julia. Um, So... I think a lot of people have told us this, and this is definitely the case, that this crisis is exacerbating existing inequalities, right? And and we've talked about that already a little bit today. Um, One of our RAND American teacher panel surveys that we did just last spring um, included questions to teachers about what kinds of challenges or barriers they face. And two-thirds of teachers reported students lacking access to devices or reliable Internet at home as a barrier to using digital materials. Um, And we also found that teachers in schools with more low-income students were more likely to note lack of access to devices or reliable Internet. Um, So this all raises major questions about whether... Um, students are getting equitable instruction. And access to devices is only one aspect of the inequities that we face. Um, Laura mentioned food services, and most schools are providing those, but definitely it is hard for some parents to get to schools that are providing these services, especially if services like Lyft aren't working or other ways that they rely on getting from one place to another. Um, Another concern is that districts and school systems might not have contact info for all their students, for the for their homeless students, for their more mobile and more disadvantaged learners. We don't have great data on this, but I know a recent article from the LA Times note, noted that about 15,000 students in Los Angeles public schools are what they said, what they called AWOL right now, meaning that they haven't had any contact with these students. Um, and so all these students may be losing out during school closures. Um, And then we've already mentioned the possible inequities because some students have special education needs that they're not getting right now. And so their learning may be limited, too. Same goes for English language learners. There's so much to think about right now, and it it, it boggles the mind to think about all the inequities that we are facing. But at the same time, I do think that there are some great innovations happening, and schools are thinking about how they can do all that they do virtually right now. And it's an exciting time, but it's... It's also a scary time, I know, for a lot of school leaders and teachers. Excellent. Um, I feel like we have covered a lot about what parents should do, but maybe we should take another run at that. Uh, There are so many disparities in the resources and supports that different parents can access. Uh, Laura, could you uh, make sure we've, we've covered everything we need to regarding parental inputs? Yeah, so I, I think one one challenge, and, and anyone who's on this call who um, has kids who, who are newly home, um, you probably are experiencing this. Parents are getting inundated, like teachers, um, with advice on what they should be doing, how to set up a homeschool, all of the resources they can use. Um, and it's frankly overwhelming. And, and again, parents, like teachers and other school staff, are dealing with their own concerns about health they may be taking care of other loved ones, they may have concerns about, um, you know, their economic future, many are laid off. Um, And so I think it's really important for parents um, to understand that their most important task 
first and foremost is to just be a supportive, loving, stable presence for your children. This is going to matter much more in the long term than whether you figure out how to operate that new system or that new nifty app that, that you um, come across on, on Twitter or whatever it might be. Um, it's important for parents to seek out support. That might be from your child's teachers, other youth workers, even other parents, um, people to talk with and get ideas from. Um, remember that your children not only have significant academic needs, but that they also are likely to be experiencing stress, anxiety, and a sense of loss. Um, you may find that your child's losses seem small compared to the things you're worried about or to the, the losses that we're seeing around us. Might just be a missed soccer season or a canceled prom. Um, it's important to realize that to children, these losses loom very large in their lives. So just being available to help them process this and think about um, alternatives and you know, understand, really understand where they're coming from and, and be there for them. Um, obviously, when it comes to instruction, parents are, you know, being pulled into a role uh, supporting that, whether they uh, maybe wanted to or not. Um, I think it's important to, and it gets back to the question about homeschooling. So people who do homeschooling put a lot of time and effort into it, and no one should be expected to set up an entire homeschool system um, all at once. So start gradually. Um, it's helpful to establish routines and engage in activities like reading or maybe doing, you know, working on a math app something that's that's sort of um, low-key, especially if your school isn't providing you with a curriculum. You know, start with these things that are, um, you know, easier and then gradually work your way up to, to the, the full curriculum. It's also important to build in physical and social activities. Um, this is important for your kids' overall well-being. Um, and really talk with your child's teachers and the other educators in their lives um, and thank them for what they're doing because they're working incredibly hard. Um, one other thing, uh, piece of advice that, that I think is important for parents to be aware of is to um, be careful about the news and information that your child is exposed to around COVID-19. Um, kids have a lot more time now, um, maybe spending a lot more time on, on social media. There's a ton of misinformation out there, um, you know, helping them understand uh, in an age-appropriate way what this virus is, what they can do about it, how they should be responding. Um, this is super important to kind of avoid anxiety and also to avoid, um, you know, negative effects. We're, we're, we're hearing, for example, about kids bullying other children um, who are of Chinese descent, right? And and there's things like that that are, you know, stemming from misinformation and, and a lack of understanding of, of, of the virus and also just sort of poor use of, of social media and lack of supervision. So this is another area that's really important, um, I think, for parents to pay attention to. And the last thing I'll say about this is, you know, there, there are massive disparities in what uh, resources and supports parents have access to. So some are very fortunate to be in school districts where their kids are getting a full curriculum. Um, some parents, you know, maybe they don't work or maybe they're able to work from home and, and it's easier for, easier for them to handle it. So um, I think that, you know, parents will do what whatever it is they're able to do to support their children, but there needs to be policy changes um, to really address these inequities going forward. This isn't something that parents are going to be able to fix on their own. You've, you've mentioned inequities. inequities. We've, uh, this has come up a few times in our conversation. Um, I wonder if one of our panelists could talk about how getting out of the public school setting is likely to exacerbate this achievement gap between kids from high and low income households. Could someone 
tackle that? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take that. This is Julia, and then others should chime in. Um, I, I think that's certainly certainly right. I think that school systems are feeling that, too. And I think school systems are trying to reach out to those students more so in a lot of cases, make sure that they're talking to someone on the phone, a parent or somebody else, if they're not reaching them by text or email, trying to send mail home. There are all kinds of ways to reach out and make sure that school systems are making a connection with parents and students who need the help. But I think that connection is a first step and then figuring out what they need in order to provide them with the instruction, the hardware, the software they need. Um, that's the next step. Very good. Darlene? Yeah, um, I think one of the other things that we need to be concerned about is the social and emotional inequity that is going to occur. I mean, our previous work on um, closures after hurricanes, Katrina, Maria, um, what we see is that there's huge uh, increases in depression and anxiety amongst kids. That's going to affect different kids differently. And we know that those things have a much longer term impact. They impact life outcomes. They impact whether kids graduate or not. It's not just immediate. And so paying attention to those inequities um, is going to be just as important as the academic stuff. Very good. How about Laura then Julia? Yeah, one, one thing I wanted to point out, too, is that there are a lot of uh, organizations out there besides schools uh, that support youth and that address inequities. So Rand has done a lot of work, for example, on the out-of-school time sector, these programs that offer after-school um you know, either instruction or enrichment. We've done work on on summer programs. There are lots of organizations that are out there trying to rethink the way they can support children. So um, in many of these lower income communities, uh, these organizations are likely to, to end up playing an important role. And just like schools, they're thinking about how they can get around um, some of the, you know, lack of availability of technology um, and so forth. Julia? I just wanted to add that not only are we thinking and concerned about the inequities between students within districts, but I think there could be a lot of inequities in what districts offer. We're seeing a lot of differences already in what they offer. Um, I know um, uh, CRPE, C-R-P-E dot org, has been looking closely at district learning plans in some of the largest districts, and it's it's humbling to see what hard work is happening. Um, but we also know that there are some districts that haven't even started classes yet. And so I think it's incumbent upon those districts, especially if they're serving low-income students and a lot of below-grade-level students, to get things started. And, and it's ha hard to figure out where to start, especially in the largest districts. But it's important for these districts to network with each other to figure out what's working so they can all be working on the same playing field. Uh, Liz had earlier asked on this topic of inequities whether we were undertaking new work on this topic. So first of all, I'll say that a lot of Rand's work, I would say the vast majority of our work in education, tries to address inequities. And it's really focused on meeting the needs of, of students who are um, in high-need schools, low, you know, coming from low-income families and, and so forth. The survey work that I mentioned, um, one of the nice things about the, the surveys, the American Teacher Panel and American School Leader Panel that Darlene described, is that 
the sample's big enough and it's it's geographically diverse enough that we're able to look at inequities across um, schools serving high and low income student populations. We can look at urban versus suburban versus rural schools. And so as we roll out these these surveys about um, what's being offered uh, in response to the, the COVID closures, we'll be able to look um, very systematically at the extent to which students in these different contexts are getting access to high quality um, instructional as well as social supports. Darlene. Yeah, I think the other thing that we've been talking about but haven't yet figured out uh, where to get funding for or how to fund it is, um, you know, we've in this session, we've been talking specifically about educational inequities, but uh, we know that education intersects with lots of other things. And so at RAND, you know, we're really um, lucky because we've got a health unit, we've got a social and economic well-being unit, and our discussions across unit are really looking at how things intersect. How does inequities in school intersect with inequities in health and health access? Uh, how does that, uh, you know, intersect with housing issues or infrastructure transportation issues? And so I think we at RAND are in a unique position to be able to look at these intersections if we can ri- find, you know, the right kind of funding to do it. Good. Uh, we had a question from John on Salido. Could this situation, this crisis, open a window for lower cost education. Laura? Well, I, I think as, as we discussed earlier, um, it is leading to a lot of innovation. And we're not seeing exactly what that looks like yet. But, you know, everybody from the classroom level all the way up to the state education agency level in the education system is, is really um, being forced to think about how can we deliver higher quality, more equitable instructional resources and social supports to all of our students? Um, and how can we do that in a way that's cost effective? So, um, you know, I don't, it's hard to predict what that'll look like, but there's certainly um, a lot of incentive right now and a lot of interest in innovating and doing it in a way that, that saves money. Darlene. Yeah, I, I mean, at, at the same time, though, um, we're not going to be ever get into a situation where teachers aren't needed. Um, and teachers are the big cost driver uh, in most systems um, in terms of salaries and benefits and that kind of thing. I mean, even in fully online schools, um, they primarily teach in what's called a synchronous matter, manner so that the teacher is present at the time of instruction. It's not that students are working con- entirely on their own. Um, I have a question about trust. This is obviously a major shock to the system, to the educational system. And I wonder if the effectiveness of the new way in which school systems are attempting to teach might somehow put the public's trust in education in some doubt. Is that a danger? And if so, how might school systems respond? Darlene. So I do think that there is a danger, and mostly it'll be driven by this inequity problem. If, in fact, that at the end of uh, this crisis or going forward, what we see is that there were a lot of kids left out and that are further disadvantaged because their school systems or their schools were not able to respond effectively and provide instruction for them, I could absolutely see that people... um, are disappointed in their schools and feel underserved by them. Laura, counterpoint perhaps? I don't disagree with that at all, but I also think that this could go another way. Um, And 
this is informed in part by my hearing from many, many, um, you know, neighbors, friends, and so forth, things like, oh my gosh, I had no idea how much, how hard my kid's teacher worked, or I can't believe how, you know, this school is pulling, pulling together in such an incredible way to um, try to deal with this just massive disruption to their operations. Um, so I'm actually hearing, at least from some quarters, um, growing appreciation for um, an understanding of the hard work that educators do. And this, and, and so the work that they do isn't always um, visible to the public in the way that I think it has become recently. Um, I do think that we, um, this inequity is going to continue to be um, the major thing that we have to, to deal with. And so um, to the extent that the solutions, if there's any innovation in the system, um, it absolutely must address this problem that we have right now and that we've had, you know, forever, um, that some kids are getting, you know, very high quality, intensive, wonderful supports when they're in the building and when they're not in the building, and others just aren't getting that. And so so that's going to continue to be, I think, the, the central task of educators as well as policymakers and researchers. Heather, where where would you come down on this issue of trust? I think I, I'm actually have, have a way to kind of bridge these both Darlene and Laura's answers here. Um, so I'll first turn on the the parent side of the equation, which is as a parent of a seven year old, I am literally for the very first time watching my child's teachers teach on videos that we download and watch every single day. Now she's supposed, you know, where I'm helping my seven-year-old, but in the process, I'm watching as if, as if I am sitting in the classroom of her reading teacher and her math teacher and so forth. And it is... Does your teacher know who's watching? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is, it, it's inspiring to see what the teachers are doing. I mean, they, I have to say, and it's, so it's enjoyable for me in that way, although it's certainly time-consuming and highly stressful as a parent to try to juggle it with a job. But the the thing I do think that districts can do to help with trust is extremely good communication and transparency. Here's what we're doing, and here's why, and here's what we're trying to do, and here's what we're trying to ramp up to. Currently, we're focusing on devices to our secondary students, but we plan to get to devices for grades three through five, and then after that, and making up a type of explanation so that parents can understand rather than have this black hole of what districts are up to and where they plan to go. And I think that parents understand that it can't all be in place on day one, but understanding that there is a ramp up plan would help and go a long way towards building trust in even uh, flailing and struggling institutions. All right. We've only got a few minutes left. We're going to have to go a little bit to lightning round here. We have a few questions still on Slido to be addressed. Uh, Lauren asks, are there any concerns right now about the negative effects of increased screen time, especially on younger children as we move education online? Yes. This is Heather. Yes, there are. Heather. This is really... This is a rub. I mean, it's a rub for districts, especially there's not as much content for those youngest students in the pre-K up through grade two. It's more challenging because, you know, children are not expected to just sit and self-direct for 50, 60, 80 minute sessions at that young age. Um, and so absolutely there's concerns about screen time, but there's not easy alternatives when parents are working at home. 
And I'll just chime in to say Laura. this is this is probably not the time that we should worry too much about um, the time kids are spending on screens and social media. For a lot of kids, um, it's a lifeline to their friends, and, and it's giving them a social outlet as well as a, a way to remain connected with the world while they're sort of locked in their houses. So I think, it, again, this is a both sides kind of issue. Rand expert, on the record, screen time is good. Okay. Uh, Quote me on that. <laughs> All right. We have a question from Dion on Slido. Are any of the in-progress or planned RAND research efforts exploring the impact of student residential displacement at the post-secondary level due to COVID-19? It's almost a yes or no question. This, this is Heather, and I'm going, mm, because yes, oh, we totally would love to study that, and I don't think that we do have a funded study on that topic. We are studying post-secondary and social services during the time of COVID um, in this study, but I don't think it's about homeless students or transitory students who are um, uh, sheltering with others. So it's a fantastic question, and it's a really pressing one. We, I know there's been media coverage about relatively large populations of homeless students in especially community colleges. So it's, it's a major concern um, and would be a fantastic topic to study. So it falls into the category of something we would like to be studying but are not currently doing so. Okay. Um, I'll take one last question from Slido, and then I'm going to wrap it up with my own question. Uh, the question from Slido from, uh, from Ryan, bargaining groups are seeking additional compensation to facilitate aspects of distance learning. Does this affect trust between teachers and the public? No one is dying to take <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. Darling. Um, there, there are a couple of things going on. Could it impact uh, trust? Sure. I mean, you know, but it's not just about teachers. We're seeing the same thing with, uh, you know, workers at Amazon or other places that are concerned about them taking a bigger risk or having to do a lot more work for the current compensation. Um that said, um, you know, without uh, federal stimulus, uh, you know, budgets are already set. So the ability to sort of top up teacher pay right now, I think, is quite limited. Um, and so I guess the, you know, the issue is how far are teachers willing to push it to be able to get that? Okay. Thanks, Darlene. Uh, a last question for me. We've only got about one minute to address it. I'm wondering whether it, it sounds like in this environment we have a tremendous opportunity for innovation. Uh, can you all just bash out a couple of innovations that you are seeing or think that you might see? Um, this is Julia. I'll start. I think that the ways that districts are thinking about getting wireless and broadband access out to students um, is just beginning to grow. We're seeing people, for example, put wireless on school buses that are driven into low-income neighborhoods so students can get wireless access that way. I think that broadband networks are thinking about how to provide these services long-term you know, beyond the places that they have typically gone to. And so that's exciting, and it might take a little bit more time, but those are innovations that I think are going to be really important long-term. Okay. We are one minute away from 6 p.m. here in Washington, so just about the end of our time. So I'd like to hand over to Brandon for parting thoughts. Brandon. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Laura, Julia, Darlene, Heather, thank you again for your time today. 
And more importantly, thank you for the important work that you're doing to better our educational systems. And for those of you on the call, again, we truly appreciate your participation and your ongoing financial support. Support for our researchers and students is especially critical right now. And you can learn more about how you can contribute by visiting campaign.rand.org. With your support, our people and expertise can serve the public welfare as never before. Stay well, everyone, and please stay in touch with us. We'll be back with more opportunities to engage with RAND. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us on the call today. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.